Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Today we're privileged to hear from someone who will be quite familiar to most of our listeners, Jana Reese, who will discuss her forthcoming book, Millennial Mormons, The Rising Generation of Latter-day Saints, to be published by Oxford University Press. Her discussion and book draw on an extensive survey commissioned by Jana and her co-author, Benjamin Knoll. Jana learned about Mormonism while attending Wellesley College, where she was pursuing a course of study that she thought would lead to her becoming a paid clergywoman. Clearly, her career plans would need to be altered when she joined the LDS Church. She went on to receive a doctorate in American Religious History from Columbia University. She's authored several books as a senior columnist for Religion News Service and is regularly quoted in national news and magazine articles on issues affecting the church. Mormonism is fortunate to have the benefit of her insightful and even-handed commentary. One last comment before we begin. Please remember that dialogue depends on the generosity of its listeners and subscribers to keep it financially viable. You can visit us at dialoguejournal.com to make an online contribution, and thank you for your support. Now to our podcast featuring Jana Reese speaking to a gathering of the Miller Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California, where she will be introduced by my wife, Dawn. It came to me that I think that the world is a better place because Jan is in it. <laughs> because uh, I so admire her, and as, as we all know, she has followers far and wide, both inside the church and outside the church. Followers of Mormon scholarship and uh, scholarship of other religions because she's involved in it all. She has, was interested in religion from the time she was a teenager, which is kind of unusual. And she has quite a past in different kinds of religious traditions. Presbyterianism, her mother was a Quaker one time, and they were involved in, in the Quaker church. And she was studying for the ministry at Princeton Theological Seminary when she became interested in Mormonism and became a voracious researcher into Mormonism and eventually converted when she was in her 20s. Now that would make an interesting talk in itself, wouldn't it? We'd like to know more about that. And there are some really good podcasts online where she talks about her conversion. So look her up online and you can uh, hear some of them. She received her bachelor's degree from Wellesley and her master's from Princeton Theological Seminary and her PhD in American Religious Studies from Columbia University. The thing that I admire about Jana, there's many things, but she has such wide-ranging interests in all kinds of religion topic, religious topics and projects. And uh, I find them very interesting, and I know that the many, many followers she has uh, feel, feel the same way. For instance, just looking at her publishing credits, she wrote uh, Mormonism for Dummies. <laughs> she wrote Flunking Sainthood, A Year of Breaking the Sabbath where she tackled 12 different spiritual practices in a quest to become more saintly. 
Some of you maybe have watched the show on television this spring, uh, The Year of Living Biblically. Any, has anyone seen it? It's a cute show. It's kind of a similar cast on, on a project. That book, Flunking Sainthood, was selected as one of the top ten religion books in 2011 by Publishers Weekly. She then wrote a book called What Would Buffy Do? The Vampire Slayer as Spiritual Guide. <laughs> I wouldn't think to do that. <laughs> I've never watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but uh, I've heard other people mention online their, uh, their interest in her tips for how to live your life. She's the senior columnist for Religion News Service and blogs for them regularly, often, and she's often quoted in national news and magazines. When so there's a big article, some, some big event involving the church, you often see Janice's name involved in that article somewhere. She's an expert on religion and literature. In 2001, she moderated a debate over whether the Harry Potter books were a track for witchcraft. In 2009, Jana began a project to tweet the Bible, each tweet summarizing a chapter of the Bible. And she said it took her three and a half years to do that. Can you imagine <laughs> taking every chapter in the Old Testament and the New Testament and finding a way to summarize it in a certain number of words and have it be clever, interesting to read? It's amazing. It was called Twible. It is not a uh, She lives in Cincinnati with her husband and her daughter, Jerusha, who are both Episcopalians. Her husband is on the vestry in the Episcopalian church there. She's a Relief Society teacher in her ward and is the stake self-reliance facilitator in the Cincinnati stake. She'll be speaking to us tonight about her latest project and book, Millennial Mormons, The Rising Generation of Latter-day Saints, which will be published by Oxford in about a year, which is based on extensive surveying she and Benjamin Knoll did in the fall of 2016. I'll turn the time over to Dr. Jana Reese. Thank you so much. Uh, this is a wonderful event. I've been one time before to the Miller-Eccles group. I had a terrific time. And I remember that people asked great questions, so I'm hoping that you will do that. In fact, I would like to say, and let's see how we do on time, but uh, let's go ahead and do that throughout. If you, I mean, unless you have a billion questions. But let's go ahead, as topics come up, feel free to ask. And if we need to move on, I will gently prod us in that direction. But let me ask, Maury, when do we need to finish? We need to finish by 9. Okay. Uh, normally, and what time if, is we, it? if we allow a Q&A session afterwards, we'd like to finish by 20 minutes tonight. Okay, so we've got a little less than an hour then. Yeah. Okay, so short questions, right? Okay, so here are millennials. They all look that good. They are a very attractive generation. <laughs> to give you a little highlight, um, lately as I've been trying to speak a little bit more about the research that has just been finished. Um, I've been open about what people want to hear about. I have some basic things that I've presented to every group, but I asked what this particular group wanted to know, and I was told authority issues and also politics. So we'll be talking about some of that. Um, first, though, we'll talk about methodology, just where this survey came from, how we know what we know, or what we think we know. Talking about authority, 
a little bit about Mormon millennials and religious beliefs. This turned out to be a, a very positive area. Religious behavior, maybe not quite so positive. Politics and LGBT issues. And then finally at the end, how many people are leaving and why? And if that's why you came, I'm so sorry, not sorry, that you have to stay until the very end to find the answer to your question. All right. So to tell you a little bit about the next Mormon survey without boring you out of your minds, in the survey we had 1,156 people who identified as current Mormons. And this is, do you identify as Mormon or LDS on a survey? It doesn't measure uh, in immediately your church attendance. It doesn't even measure whether you are officially on the rolls of the LDS church, although I would assume most people who say yes to that question are. It just is, do you self-identify right now as LDS? We had 540 former Mormons, so a population about half the size, and a margin of error of a little under 3% for the current Mormons and 4.2-4.3% for the former Mormons. So just keep in mind as we're looking at statistics, if we're looking at all of the current Mormons together, plus or minus 3% on either side, we're looking at all the former Mormons together, plus or minus a little more than 4% on either side. But often what happens is that we're actually subdividing each group into generations or sometimes into male and female. <coughs> and so the margin of error goes up, right? Just want to make this clear. It's like I think every soci sociologist is going to, um, we have the best one in the very back row. <laughs> Armin Moss is here, which makes me both delighted and also really nervous that I'm going to say something stupid. Um, so just keep in mind that margin of error. The next Mormon survey was a little bit unusual in academic work in that it was funded by ordinary people and not by a foundation, not by an academic grant. And so some of the people who donated are actually here in this room. And if you contributed two years ago to the Kickstarter campaign that resulted in this research, could you please raise your hand? Don't be modest, higher. <laughs> yeah. And Armand in the back. Thank you so much. You know, the discussions that we're able to have is because of your generosity and uh, I, I appreciate it so much. And like Don said, there will be a book coming out that will be out in about a year, a little less than a year, from Oxford called The Next Mormons, The Rising Generation of Latter-day Saints in America, I think is the full title. The survey was fielded in September and October of 2016 by Qualtrics, which is a research firm using a nationally representative sample and following standard protocols, et cetera, et cetera. I won't bore you with all of that. Actually, I have a question about that form of detail. So, I mean, are you going to talk about how you know it's representative? Well, we can say it is representative to the best that we're able to do. I mean, social science is a science, but it is also an art. And this guy, Benjamin Knoll, who is pol political scientist at Center College, um, used the Pew national sample for us to weight against. So if we had too many, uh, we in fact had an overrepresentation of educated persons in the survey, which sometimes happens, especially with internet samples. Uh, so we had to wait to account for that. 
we had an underrepresentation of elderly white men, which I found hilarious, because <laughs> when in Mormonism is that the case? <laughs> yeah. So to the best of our knowledge, I, as more social science research is done, this will become a little bit you know, more triangulated and better all the time. So how are we defining these four generations? We have the guy on the phone that still has a cord, right? <laughs> Silent generation. Born 1928 to 1944, baby boomer. Uh, this is the post-war baby boom generation who are now, um, many of whom, retiring. Generation X, I found the picture of someone who looked like she's just about to have a nervous breakdown, <laughs> which I think is characteristic of many women my age. Um, and then the very cool-looking millennial got it together. So when we talk about millennials in general, we're talking about people born in the 1980s and 1990s. There's a little bit of wiggle room on either side of that, but in general, that's what we're talking about. We had, as I said, a very small number of, of elderly men in particular in the survey. We only had 36 silent generation members. We had more than 300 baby boom members. So in the results that you will see, most of the time those are aggregated together as one single more robust generation. For Generation X and the Millennials, we had more than 400. So that's a smaller margin of error. And we did not survey um, Generation Z, which is a generation coming up, the ones who are in high school now and very early college. Uh, I will be fascinated to see how uh, future research, what we find out about this generation that's coming up because in surveys of Gen Z that I've seen that deal with the entire American population, they're even more different still, especially politically. So that'll be interesting. So who are our Mormon people? In this sample, 86% said that they were either somewhat active or very active in the LDS church. This is a pretty active group. 52% held a current temple recommend. So more than half, which we don't have exact statistics of how many Mormons have a temple recommend, but this is higher than most of the guesses, the educated guesses that I have seen. Um, I don't know, Armand, what do you think? No, I think you're right. That, that, it's, that it's higher. So keep in mind as we present some of, you know, we look through some of the data about behavior in particular, these are people who actually, many of them have a temple recommend, okay? So, Millennials and Authority, this is the longest part of tonight's presentation, since that's what you asked for. Many people who research generations, and Ryan, I believe you are <coughs> one of these people, right? Ryan. Yep. Yeah. You are Ryan, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> I got my Millennials confused, right? <laughs> Ryan. Um, have chronicled what I would call an erosion of trust in institutions, especially large institutions, and religious organizations are no different. Can you all see from over there? Okay. okay. Um, here, we have broken the silent generation out. Keep in mind the margin of error for that is ridiculous, right, when we're looking at just that small number. But still, you can get the sense of where we're going. With every generation of Mormons, we're losing 10 to 12 points in whether people have this trust in religious organizations. And this is broadly defined. The question is, um, I believe religious organizations are a great force for good. 
Millennials, uh, at 62% of Mormon millennials, come out higher on this question than non-Mormon millennials. Um, we'll look at that in just a second. But it's still lower, considerably lower, than previous generations of Mormons. So that's kind of a background to keep in mind. This is some Pew data that, if I could just point out here, churches and religious organizations in 2010, when Pew asked a similar question, uh, do religious organizations have a positive effect on the way things are going in the country today? So 73% of millennials in 2010 said yes, and you see this dive down to 55% in 2015, whereas the other generations actually had a little bit of an uptick, which is a little bit surprising to me, actually. I wonder now, if we ask the same question, uh, if how it would be, and especially this one, thinking about trust in the national news media right now. <laughs> well, I work for the news media, so, you know, we really try. We try our very best to be accurate. Another question about authority that I found interesting, this does not show a really big generational spread like we saw with the question about religious organizations. Here, 59% of millennial Mormons agree that obeying leaders is essential to being a good Mormon. 70% of boomer silent Mormons feel the same way. So, you know, you do see a little bit of that sense of erosion of authority, but I don't see this as being particularly dramatic. This one to me was more interesting. So we asked a series of questions about things that people might be bothered or troubled by. And <coughs> one of those was, I am troubled, very troubled, uh, somewhat troubled or not at all troubled by these various things. And here it's the church's emphasis on conformity and obedience. As you can see, a majority of boomer silent Mormons, thank you, you know, they're really not fussed about that. The idea that um, obedience would be emphasized, conformity. For millennials, though, a majority say they are bothered, either somewhat or very bothered. So 56% of the millennials in the survey seem to be bothered in some way. Does that surprise anybody here? No? Okay. Well, <laughs> I did a little research. I was kind of curious about changing wedding practices. So you know how you have those days, something that's ancillary to your own research, but still sort of interesting. And I started looking at millennial wedding pictures. What do you notice about this? There's, there's what, one LDS girl? <laughs> yes, it's the diversity, right? You can tell that they're all part of the wedding party, but Every one of those dresses is different. They're all you know, the same basic shade of red. They all seem to have some sort of sparkly bling, or, or at least most of them do. But they're all individual. They're all highlighting one particular uh, young woman and whatever features are most attractive about her. And to me, this is paradigmatic. And I thought, well, is that just me? Is that just my perception? But it turns out that there's a whole branch of social science that tracks the wedding industry. Like, this is a job that people have. And in 2016, 66% of brides said that they chose this arrangement, where they would provide sort of the basic parameters of what the wedding attire would look like, and then let their bridesmaids decide. This is very new. I mean, I don't know, people who are a little bit older 
Do you remember Seafoam Green? I mean, we had some pretty unfortunate things that we had to endure, right? And everyone had to be decked out exactly the same. I think that this, this image is an important one for us to remember. This is a generation that has been taught about individualism from the day that they were born. The personalized nameplate from day one. And so in church, when we emphasize things like conformity and obedience, without an acknowledgement of how important individualism has been to them in other areas of their lives, that can be a, bit, a little bit of a disconnect for some people. Another thing that we can think about with looking at authority, how people relate to Mormon authority, is just who is watching General Conference. This is um, people who have watched General Conference in the last six months. And to be honest with you, this question was not in the original drafts of the survey. It's part of a question that is about popular culture consumption. And most of the things in that question were fairly negative. Like, in the last six months, have you viewed explicit pornography? Have you viewed soft pornography? Which we let people decide for themselves. Uh, I didn't want to try to define that. Um, have you viewed R-rated movies, PG-13 movies, animated movies? Most of those things were pretty negative. And one of the feedback pieces that I got from a social scientist when we were still in the draft survey stage was, you're going to really scare Orthodox Mormons with this question. So why don't you weave in some things into the question that are benign? So we added LDS General Conference really solely with that in mind. I did not dream of it being kind of an interesting data point in its own right. Wow, um, this is a pretty serious drop generationally of people who seem to be interested in General Conference. Ben and I have talked uh, somewhat about the reasons for this. You know, part of it is surely that it's available in so many other ways, and the more technologically astute you are, which presumably many millennials would be, the more accessible it is to you in other forms. I think another issue, though, is that people tend to behave better when other people can see us. And when we had to get dressed up and actually go to the ward building or the stake center to see general conference and also see and be seen, uh, attendance might have been higher at that time. I, I don't have any data on that, but this is just my, my thought. I don't know. I think, though, this is something to watch. Yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering if we're seeing that snapshots and I mean, over time people's lives change and their behavior mm -hmm. might change. Right? Having, for example, having yeah. kids can affect you know, how you behave on this. And so, so there could be a trajectory through one's life where it's not necessarily these millennials are always going to stay at 44% mm -hmm. watching general conference for last six months. So did you, do you have any sense when, from, now I guess these data are just a snapshot so mm -hmm. you don't have a panel, but do you have, a, do you have in, any other evidence from this? Like for example, mm -hmm. um, the, the younger Gen Xers and the older millennials that are near the boundary, mm -hmm. are they looking pretty similar? So that you can see, well, maybe there are some 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 ways that we could predict changes through the through the life, yeah. through the life cycle. Gen Xers are almost always more like millennials in the data than they are like Boomer Silence in the data, uh, with just maybe two exceptions that I can think of off the top of my head. But as you can see here, once again, they're closer to millennials. What you're talking about is the problem with snapshot surveys. We don't have longitudinal data just based on one survey. And so therefore, we can't really accurately predict 
what's going to happen and whether something is a life cycle effect, meaning this is just a phase that millennials are going through and they're going to grow out of it when they have kids of their own or you know, when they get married, whatever, maybe reverse order for that in Mormonism. Um, or if this is actually a, gen a genuine cohort effect that may go with them as they age. However, I think we have enough other data on this generation as a whole to be a little bit careful about just saying that something is a stage of life effect. Because, um, for example, in the National College Freshman Survey, which has been tracking college freshmen since the 1960s, we can see how religiosity has played out over time among people who are all 18 or 19 years old at the time that they take the survey. And the drops in religiosity are very noticeable, if not precipitous, in this. So obviously time will have to tell with this and a lot of other questions, but I'm not terrifically optimistic. <coughs> Particularly, I would say, because in the past, uh, the idea has been that people might return to greater religiosity when certain life cycle events happen, like <coughs> marriage and children. But if a generation might be delaying marriage and having fewer children, you can't count on the same kind of thing happening again. It was kind of a long answer to your question. Here's another one that I thought was interesting. We asked people to just choose between two binary statements. Good Latter-day Saints should obey the council of priesthood leaders, even if they don't necessarily know or understand why, or that they should seek their own personal revelation and act accordingly, even if it is in conflict with the Council of Priesthood Leaders. This was adapted from a previous question, and this last part we added, even if it is in conflict with the Council of Priesthood Leaders. I really wanted to see, when push comes to shove, how do Latter-day Saints, what do they privilege? Personal revelation and conscience, or, or this chain of command, the, the priesthood authority, and whether there was a generational effect. So. Overall, 56% of Mormons say they would obey priesthood leaders even if it's in conflict with their <coughs> own ideas. And the groups most likely to obey are women, political conservatives, people in Utah, and those with a college degree. Yeah. <coughs> Does anything about that surprise you, about these groups that are the college degree part? Okay. You think it would be the other way. So this is a very interesting thing. Um, and you know, Armin, feel free to weigh in here. And Carrie, where, wherever Carrie is sitting, feel free to weigh in here. But there's been some very interesting research about ed education and its possible correlation with religiosity. And in the past, the assumption may have been that people who become educated are more likely to leave religion. And now that is really being challenged, that uh, there's this idea instead that there is a correlation between education and religiosity, and it, it also correlates with class. Well, it, it's always been somewhat a spurious discovery mm -hmm. that uh, higher education and church participation go up together because it merges together among the highly educated mm -hmm. a whole bunch of different disciplines. And mm -hmm. when you realize that Mormons with advanced degrees, especially in Utah, are most likely to be doctors, dentists, businessmen, mm. um, and accountants. Uh, you can say it, lawyers. We're <laughs> 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 dealing with people who are trained 
professionally yeah. to uh, look for black and white answers. Mm. Uh, because and I think anybody that is in the humanities or social sciences mm -hmm. who's tried to talk to a priesthood leader, you know, who's a <laughs> dentist, about some of the things that bother us, they just can't understand. Uh -huh. uh, so unless you can find some controls for the kind of discipline in which they've been mm -hmm. trained, it's hard to make any, draw any conclusions about what education does. Yeah, I think that's really true. You know, when we were trying to define these categories, we had the, the completed some college category, we had the, the college degree category, and then we had professional degree, and then we had um, higher graduate ed academic type degree. That was interesting. So education, get it, the more education that you have, with only one exception in our survey correlated with higher religiosity. The one exception was women who get academic degrees, <coughs> not professional, not the lawyers, not the dentists, yeah, but women who, who have a PhD like me in you know some soft thing <coughs> like religion or history, something like that. Um, we are more likely to leave the church. Was there a hand over here? Yes? Yeah. Would, would it make a difference as to the college the degree came from? And I'm thinking of BYU, where yeah. you are inundated with church doctrine and listen to your leaders and obey the leaders, as opposed to another school, mm -hmm. my alma mater, for example, Utah, which probably <laughs> would not look at it quite the same way. That's a great question. We did not mm -hmm. ask that specific level of where your education was was received. So was it a church-owned university, a secular university, a small liberal, liberal arts college? Um, that would have been really interesting, and it's one of many dope slap post-survey moments that I've had, like, why did we not ask that? It would have been so easy to ask that. We would, though, then run into the question of, I'm pretty sure we would have seen higher religiosity among church university graduates, but then how does that correlate with people who probably chose a church university because they were already more religious? You know, that's one of the issues carried with Worse. I mean, the, the educational difference, the socioeconomic inequality uh, grows a little bit wider over time, which seems to exacerbate some of these already existing correlations. All right. I have a son who's in his master's degree in anyway right now, mm -hmm. and is heading for a PhD in a liberal arts. He wants to be a 19th century literature professor. And, Great. And so his mentor teacher in his master's degree is is you know telling you just in, they're good friends too in conversation that as he goes out most of the colleges that he'll apply to they've been tracked she's been tracking it probably 90 percent of the people that go into this phd in liberal arts like what he's going into fall away from the church mm -hmm. right in the 90 percent that's time. fascinating and is it's it huge. both men and women yeah as far as i understand both men both and women. men and women mm -hmm. okay well i i should qualify when I said, you know, women who receive the specific kind of advanced degrees. Now we're in the really small raw numbers. So the margin of error gets really big, right? So that's not something that I'm, I'm at all confident about saying is absolutely true all the time. In this survey, that's what we saw. But that's a small population, so.
Okay, so back to the obey priesthood leaders, obey personal revelation. Blue is the boomer silent generation. So 65% of boomer silent said they would obey priesthood leaders, and a third, a little more than a third, said they would obey revelation. And as you can see with each generation, it becomes a little more balanced. Where millennials are right now is almost exactly half and half. So we've got 51% of millennials saying they would obey priesthood leaders and 49% personal revelation. You know, to me, this is what a healthy church looks like, right? When we are able to navigate that tension and have both kinds of people, because we need both kinds of people. We need the people who are the stalwarts and say, this is what the Lord says, this is what the scripture says, this is what tradition says, this is what we're doing. And we also need the people who are going to challenge that. And when I see this, I feel very encouraged, uh, frankly, about millennials. That, and I, I hope that this can stay roughly equal. Uh, what I worry, though, is that the people over there who obey personal revelation, um, that group correlates with some of the other things that correlate with leaving the church. Right? <laughs> so how do we keep those 49% and make them feel valuable and help them feel that this is an important position that we need in the church? To me, that's one of the big questions. Can I just add a quick point? Yes. Just, I love your idea of, of balance there, but also um, balance in leadership positions yeah. as well. And I think that that's maybe where yeah. there's a little... It's weighted differently. It is. The ones who tend to get promoted are not usually those people, right? We were just talking about a wonderful bishop that we had in Cincinnati, and it was a bit of a rude awakening, you know, to move somewhere else and then uh, have someone be so by the book. Um, not that, like I said, we need those people too, but we need them in balance, right, with other people. And um, sometimes that balance is a little thin on the ground in the church hierarchy. So we've seen a number of indications like general conference viewership, uh, obedience, conformity, that institutionally millennials are at a bit of a divide from institutional authority. That was not, however, what we found when we asked some questions about how they feel about local authority. And I'll only talk about one of those here this one is about counseling with the bishop for a personal problem. Um, it's not, I need to go see the bishop to sign off on, you know, a temple recommend or a, an ecclesiastical endorsement for BYU or a mission call. But specifically, the question was about counseling with the bishop about a personal issue, a personal problem. Millennials had the highest rate of any generation of saying that they very often or sometimes will counsel with the local bishop which I thought was fascinating. And also in the personal interviews, I did about 63, I think, personal interviews for the book. This came up many times. You know, online, I think we hear a lot of stories of people who've had difficult experiences with their bishops. There seem to be a lot more stories of people who have had positive experiences with their bishops. And I did not find in the data evidence that millennials are um, suspicious of local people, therapists, bishops, uh, parents, <coughs> friends. In, in fact, they seem very receptive to that kind of leadership. 
So if there's a way in, this is really what they are resonating with, this idea of small and local. Yeah. Does it have to do with Yes. And I think someone mentioned the life cycle effect over here. This is an example of where, yes, I think the life cycle effect absolutely comes into play. When you are, um, when you are 75, do you really want to counsel about a personal problem with a bishop who is 30 years younger than you? No. Probably not. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> not doing that. <laughs> okay. Can I just make a comment? Yes. I'm a boomer. But when I joined the church, I was in college, and I was 24 years old. Mm -hmm. And my parents were back in Missouri. I was out here in California. Yeah. And I counseled with my bishop a lot. Mm. I mean, he was like the father of the ward. Yeah. And I went to him. I went to my home teacher. And I depended upon their their counsel because I was a new convert. Mm -hmm. And But I haven't been into the bishop to counsel about <laughs> anything like that for years. Because I've got a high priest in my, in my own house. I can go to him. We can talk about things. Yeah. So I think it has a lot to do with how old you are. Yeah. Like I said, I think this does relate to the life cycle. Well, she set me up for my question. Did you break this down by gender? Do yeah. Do women tend to counsel more with the bishop? Than what do you think? I think they do. Yeah. That, that women tend um, to counsel with the bishop? You're wrong. Isn't that interesting? Because yeah. I was expecting exactly what you were expecting, that you know, women are going to do this more often. Um, actually, it was men, and it was, it was noticeable. It was outside the margin of error. That men will go to their bishop more often than women. What I would like to know, though, if, in being a little skeptical about that, is, is that because men simply have proximity, that women don't. You know, men see each other in meetings to which I'm never invited, right? And... So if, if I were to make an appointment with my bishop, it would have to be a thing. You know, that's, that's a thing. I don't really interact with my bishop just in the course of, hey, did you turn in that report? By the way, I'm getting a divorce, or whatever the personal problem might be. <laughs> yeah. But it was an interesting finding. Is what you just said consistent with all of those groups, or just the millennials? It was men as a whole, yeah. And it was not that often that we break up a group by both gender and generation, because that just gets too small. We did it sometimes, but it, it, you know, gets too small. Is there anybody here? All right, let's move on, and let me see how we're doing on time. Religious beliefs, we will go through pretty fast. No big shocker here, nine out of ten Mormons believe in God. I'm sure that's not going to be news to you. <laughs> Woo! But when we break that down, it's, it becomes a little more nuanced, a little more interesting. So we asked questions about uh, theological beliefs on five or six point scales. And the, the most confident opening option was that you, you believe something, or you know something rather, and you have no doubts about it. So here we have 85% of boomer silent people saying they believe in God, or sorry, they know that God exists and have no doubts about it. 70.5% of millennials have that same confidence. And as you can see, Gen X is once again a little bit closer to millennials than they are to the older Mormons. Um, so this is not an earth-shattering finding, but it is interesting because it kept coming up on many different questions about belief, including, ah, well, here, uh, we even see within 
the millennial generation, if you divide the younger millennials, 18 to, to 26, it goes down to about 66%, so wow. two-thirds have that absolute confidence. It's something we should remember when we're at, at fast and testimony meeting, that not everybody could get up there and say, I know X, Y, Z. Um, those people need to be comfortable as well in a testimony meeting. Do you know that that's not just due to attrition as people go through their own life cycle? And many of those millennials, by the time they're considered the older generation, may have attrition? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you're saying that this group are the ones who have stuck around. Yes, exactly. Yeah, absolutely, you're right. And, and we don't. And they're ready to check. All we don't have any way of. To check all those boxes, or they yeah. would have left a long time ago. Right. Yeah, we don't have any way of knowing that. But well, I'm not surprised at the end, okay. At the end, I'll show you kind of a generational trajectory of leaving, uh, and leaving was less common for older Mormons. Yeah. The silent group has been through war. Been through war. Been through war. The silent generation certainly has, yeah, uh, at least been old enough to witness well, the, the war. Yeah. Right. I'm sorry. You're right. Um, so also this question of belief, I think, was very particularly interesting in the question of confidence that Joseph Smith was a prophet. So here we have a pretty big drop, and Gen X and millennials are similar to each other. But people who say they know and are confident that Joseph Smith was a prophet. Now, millennials and Gen Xers on almost all of these questions make up for it with option two and option three, which were... I believe and have faith that this particular thing is true, um, or I think this might be true, but I have my doubts. So that was kind of a middle option. So it's not like they're not believers, right? It's more like they're not totally 100% certain in the way that many older Mormons seem either certain or feel that they have to say that they're certain. Okay, so we kind of skipped through belief pretty quickly. Belief is very strong in general. That's some of the best news of the book. We didn't find any major fault lines with Mormon beliefs except the nuance that I just showed you. Behavior, though, we saw kind of the best of times and the worst of times. Here is the best of times with behavior. This is missionary service for three combined generations. Women are in the red. <laughs> that didn't quite come out the way I meant it to, but women are red here. So 13% of boomer silent women served a full-time mission. It includes any people who came home early, although no one from the boomer silent generation came home early. Uh, 50, I'm sorry, 28% of Gen X women, and we're up to 44.5% of millennial women who've served a mission. So this is a tremendous threefold climb in missionary service. And also men's missionary service in the green has climbed. It's not as dramatic, but, uh, but that's also up. So what we're seeing here for millennials is that when you put those together, more than half have served a mission. So that's a very interesting change in the church. Yeah? Did, did the wars have anything to do with that statistic? Did the what? The wars. The wars. They the wars. More because <laughs> they were at war and they Yes. Sometimes that is true. Um, for uh, circumstances that were beyond people's control from President Nelson on down, or I guess President Monson was more affected by that. But yes, and also with Vietnam. Well, some of those in the Gen X and Boomer Silent generation 
joined the church after missionary age too. So yep, you, you expect true. few less. Mm-hmm. We have a number of really strong people in our ward who, mm-hmm. you know, they weren't members when they were 20. Wow. Here's something interesting that's not reflected here, but um, the rate of missionary service was higher for non-white Mormons than for white Mormons, which I found very interesting because the convert rate is also higher for non-white Mormons. And so, like you said, you know, if you are joining past missionary age, you would expect that it would be lower, but in that case, it was actually higher. Is it? Yes? That previous slide, um, how would you quantify about Joseph Smith? Uh, no, uh, it would be about works and all being available online and here what the media makes everything available. And I was raised more on everything's peachy wonderful and <laughs> you know, all this is XYZ and then later when you see online or works and all, you see the fallibility of a certain that they didn't ever address. Mm-hmm. So you know people are getting to more of that and it doesn't seem to be holding them in. It's, it's so complicated. You know, we asked a couple of questions about internet being related to leaving, and either it's just not happening or people don't admit that it's happening. I can't tell you which that might be. But we'll get in a minute to some of the reasons that people say that they did leave. And specific doctrinal <coughs> issues are really not ranking very high in that list, which was surprising to me considering how much ink is spilled online on some of these very specific doctrinal issues or Book of Mormon historicity issues. Uh, those are not the main catalysts. question that we have a nephew yeah. getting his second master's instead of his PhD in religious studies, and he's a return missionarist, educating himself right out of the church. And oh. I just wondered how statistically that shows up here. Well, statistically, Actually, that, like I said, would correlate generally with staying. But people aren't statistics. You know, in, in every possible way, everyone here in this room is going to defy the odds on something. There's not going to be a single person here who is statistically in the majority on everything. So, but I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Oh, let's see. Okay, so here we are in church attendance. This was a whopper. Um, <coughs> There were two questions on church attendance because people tend to overestimate their ideal behaviors, and that's true of of many surveys on religiosity. So we asked specifically, you know, do you consider yourself a regular attender? How often do you attend? Um, But then we also said, how often have you attended in the last 30 days? This is the 30 days question. Only 47% of millennials who count themselves as Latter-day Saints, many of whom say that they're active in the church, uh, have been to church in the last 30 days. And that's by their own admission, which may even be inflated. So that's very interesting. Um, We do know from the, the leaked video about the Brethren in 2008, as they're talking about the young single adults in the church, that in North America, they were saying that there was a 30% activity rate for young single adults. Internationally, it was lower. Um, But 30% there, which is interesting. If I didn't have that as a baseline that's coming from this secret meeting of the church where they're talking about this and they're wringing their hands about this problem, I would have looked at this and said, no way, really? But it does does seem to be happening. 
Okay. So word of wisdom. Um, just this past week in dialogue, Ben uh, spearheaded writing up an article that is a more academic approach to some of this, this, these findings. But if you're interested, if you subscribe to Dialogue, you can get all of the dirt about Word of Wisdom stuff there. Here are the highlights. Um, as you can see, coffee in the green, 40 and 39% for Gen Xers and Millennials. This is actively using or have tried it at some This point. is just in the last six months. Believe me, if I thought that this was going to be anything, you know, that would, yeah, I would have asked more follow-up questions, including how often, and do you think iced coffee is coffee? That's one of the things that came up in interviews, and it would have never occurred to me that, that some people don't feel that iced coffee is coffee. So, yeah, because it's not a hot drink, exactly, yeah. Um, you can see also with alcohol, we have 14% of boomer silent Mormons who've had alcohol in the last six months, Gen Xers and Millennials. Oh it's uh, 30 and 29%. Now, here's something that I found very interesting. With boomer silence, what you would expect is actually true, that these are the people who don't have temple recommends, don't say they're active in the church. Um, but for millennials in particular, and also Gen Xers a little bit less, these are often the people who do have temple recommends and who say that they are active somewhat or very active in the church. I'm just going to leave it there because, <laughs> you know, that's, that's really all we know. Uh, future surveys are going to tease out more of this. The sample size of the 1100 and some, is it yeah. all over the country? Yes, it's a nationally representative sample. Um, and based on geography, we weighted how many people could live in Utah and elsewhere. So. Randomly, randomly. Yes. Yeah. On alcohol for Gen X and Millennial, uh, can you break that down by gender? Oh, it's so much worse for men. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, well, men, but you I, suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for women. That's what I would have supposed. Yeah, for belief, women are nine points, on average, more orthodox than men. So, and all those questions about testimony. Um, for behavior, uh, women, I don't know an actual number of how many points they are more likely to be adhering to the word of wisdom, but it was noticeable. And that's also true for church attendance and a lot of other measures of religiosity in Mormonism that women are... Uh, better practitioners of more orthodox Mormons, Mormonism than men are. Oh, <laughs> they're such sweet spirits. Yeah. yeah. Well, but this is such a good point, Armand. You know, do we do we see this because women are socialized to believe that we are more spiritual, we're more religious, we're angels, we're unicorns, we're rainbows, right? Or is it really true innately that women are? I mean. I have no idea. But it's a very interesting question for pondering. Yeah, Carrie. The tobacco seems really high. I know. Just in general. I know. Well, to me, the tobacco is, is the most depressing part. My parents both smoked, and not coincidentally, they're both dead now. Um, if I could shake millennials by the neck and say, this is something that is so obvious. I mean, coffee... If anything, there's research that would suggest that coffee might even be good for you, right? Tea. But every bit of research is about how bad smoking is for you and how it will shorten your life. It's, it's not rocket science. 
So to see this data about millennials engaging in that particular behavior, I find it really depressing. Do you think smoking and vaping? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. So, what was it? Was vaping? Yeah, we didn't have a specific category for vaping, and it never occurred to me to ask it until after the survey. So, this is another one of those dope slap moments. But a few weeks ago, or like a month ago, I was in Utah and speaking with a professional seminary teacher who was telling me about how, for some of the students in his seminary classes, they vape because to them, this is not violating the word of wisdom. Um, <laughs> they have a lot of good justifications for it, right? But yeah, so that's going on the next survey. I'm noticing um, categories that I don't know where we would place prescription drug addiction or use. Yeah. Um, in your minds, would it be either, I mean, it's, it's it's not the marijuana, but this might be the Mormon response to the opioid crisis, except that Salt Lake City has one of the highest rates of opioid addiction, mm -hmm. prescription drug addiction now in the country. Um, but psychedelics, how did you define psychedelics? I think that the, the parenthetical on that, I'd have to go back and, and look, it was PCP, LSD, I don't remember exactly, but... Yeah. One thing that you mentioned about Utah, we did talk, uh, we did have a question about um, antidepressant and anti-anxiety medication because this has been a thing where uh, Mormons have been, you know, said to, we're all secretly depressed. But actually I'm in the minority uh, among Mormons. It was about one in five said that they have ever taken an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety med, which is not that different from the national population. It is higher in women, but it's higher in women in the national population compared to men. So that's not unusual either. Yeah, as far as opioid, we didn't ask that specifically. So hang on one second, so, there was a question So here. men smoke and drink and, and women take antidepressants is what you're saying. Uh, my, my, <laughs> exactly. my, more, my more serious question is, uh, is on tobacco. Did it have the same heavy skew uh, in men's use of tobacco and much, much lower in women? Yeah, if I'm remembering correctly, and I think I am, that, that yes, I definitely did. The only That's thing that, we, I well, I think there were two things that women were higher in. One was caffeinated soda and one was tea. And it wasn't actually by that much. It wasn't herbal Right, non-herbal tea. I just assumed that herbal tea would probably be regarded as okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about um, uh, marijuana, because you're <laughs> Did they break out uh, medicinal versus recreational use? It didn't. It didn't. Um, so our, our four baby boomers could be cancer patients. Right. They could be going through chemo. Exactly. Yeah, something like yeah. that. It's possible. You're thinking the best of them. I appreciate that. It could be other four babies. That's right. It's possible. All right, are we done with Word of Wisdom? Okay, let's move on. Politics, aren't you excited? So party affiliation, current Mormons are going to be in the orange in this slide and former Mormons are in the blue. We haven't really talked much about former Mormons yet, but we're about to start getting into some of that data. Key thing here, in our survey, which was September and October of 2016, I want you to remember that because it's important politically, 57% of current Mormons said that they either voted or leaned 
Dem or Republican. And we had 32% Democrat, 11% Independent. And it won't surprise you that for former Mormons, the, there's a pretty big drop in the ones who are uh, more affiliated with the GOP. So that's 38%. That's a 19-point difference in GOP affiliation. 46% Democratic and 16% Independent. So among former Mormons, we see a higher, almost half, um, but still that's lower than it is in the general population among former members of other religions. So that was interesting. Mm -hmm. So why is it important that the <laughs> survey was fielded in right September? Before the election. Right, right before the election. If there was ever a time in American politics when we need to be skeptical of this low number of Mormon affiliation with the Republican Party, okay? Um, because compared to previous surveys, this is low to have just 57% of current Mormons. Um, and then I say, on the other hand, if we look at Pew's longitudinal political data from 1992 onward, uh, the, the norm has been more like the 60 to 65% Republican number. And recently we've had these big spikes with Mitt Romney in particular, and also um, George W. Bush. So maybe we're just returning to the normal, or maybe this is a blip and it's gonna go right back up once there's a decent Republican candidate. We don't know. <laughs> well, you know, this doesn't jive with the, is it the Pew data that has said nationwide, 68% of Mormons voted for Trump. It was a little lower than that, yeah. Oh, it was? Mm -hmm. How much lower? Yeah, so Pew, it was 60% uh, for Pew, 56% for the, what is the election political whatever database. And then in Utah, it was even lower than that. So um, with Evan McMullen on the ballot there, having a viable alternative, you know, a nice Mormon alternative, it was a lower group for Trump. But, you know, I, I want to be honest with you about places where I'm a little skeptical of my own data. Um, I would love to believe that Mormons are coming to a more balanced place politically, but only time is going to be able to tell us if that's a real thing. Let's look at it by generation, though. In this snapshot, we can still tell an awful lot about generational difference. So with boomer silence, 67.5% say that they are with the Republican Party and only a quarter Democrat, a very small single-digit number of independents. And then for Gen Xers, we see a little bit more parity, but still we're looking at a two to one difference with Republican versus Democratic. For millennials, however, we have 46% Republican, 41% Democrat, and then we've got that uptick, which is typical of millennials everywhere, not just in the LDS tradition, of being done. I am done with political parties, I'm an independent. And we're gonna see more of that, I'm sure, when Gen Z starts aging into surveys. Any questions about this? So quickly, looking at one of the hot button issues and how quickly uh, society has changed, this is a question that Pew has been asking for a long time that we repeated in our survey. It's a simple binary where people are asked to say, I believe homosexuality should be accepted by society or discouraged by society. And this does not have to do with uh, churches. It doesn't ask you about whether you know, people should be allowed to be married in, uh, gay people should be married in churches. It's just about civil society. Should it be accepted? Should it be discouraged? And you can see here that when Pew 
started breaking out Mormons on this question in 2007, uh, Mormons have 24% support. So only one in four Mormons believed in 2007 that homosexuality should be accepted by society. By 2014, in the next Pew Religious Landscape Survey, it was 36%. And in our survey in 2016, it was 48%. PRRI actually asked something similar and got an even higher percentage than we did, which was interesting to me. So you can see that there's starting to be a little bit more uh, parity between Mormons and the rest of the nation. Mormons are still lagging behind significantly on same-sex marriage, but not by as much as 10 years ago. So among younger millennials, if we just break out those in the 18 to 26 percent bracket, 60 percent believe homosexuality should be accepted by society. For them, this is just not the issue that it is for many older people in America. I'm not telling you anything, I think, that you don't already see. But I think that 60% is a tipping point. I really do. This is uh, only going to grow. And finally, how many people are leaving and why? It, well, before I move on, any questions about politics, same-sex uh, relationships, anything? Okay. You guys have it all figured out. Okay, take a deep breath. This data comes from the General Social Survey. And it was compiled by Darren Shurkat, who's a socio sociologist in uh, southern Illinois. And I contacted him because in his most recent book, he had this data through 2012. And I asked if we could, uh, Ben and Darren and I could together bring it up to date based on the general social survey data through last year. And it had gotten worse. Um, that was interesting to see, because in the data through 2012, we had a combined rate of 62.5% for both Gen Xers and Millennials. But breaking them out separately for Millennials, which is a very small number in the survey, it's 46%. That's that we're keeping, meaning that 54% of that small group um, who were Mormon at age 16, that's how GSS asks this question, uh, were only 46% were Mormon today. That, yeah. that parameter at age 16, yeah. does that apply to each of the generational groups? It does. Wow. The question is the same for everyone. Yeah, R16. Um, so because, let me add the next slide here. So among millennials, only retention was down to 46%. But the GSS sample size was small. This is another thing where we just have to wait until we get more data and years go by and we can, we can add to this. Meanwhile, um, analyzing the Pew 2014 data, overall we saw in Pew's 2007 data that Mormons were keeping 70% of people who grew up Mormon. And by the 2014 Pew Landscape Survey, that was down to 64% total. But it wasn't dramatically different for millennials in that survey. And that was a bigger sample size. So somewhere between 46% and 62% is your answer, probably. So do we know how that compares to other things? Yeah. Well, it's kind of uh, complicated because in some ways it's better than it is for other traditions. In, in Darren Shurkat's data, though, in some ways it's actually worse because 
recently some of those other religious traditions that were really struggling 15, 20 years ago have leveled off a little bit and now we're having our divide. So at the moment it looks maybe worse for us than it did. Yeah. Uh, I guess you come across some of the literature in which uh, uh, this question of retention is addressed through the census yeah. in each country. And uh, we don't normally ask about religion in an American census, mm -hmm. but in Canadian and most other countries, they have a census question. And it, it asks whether you think of yourself or identify, mm -hmm. I don't know what the wording is, but it's basically do you identify as a Latter-day Saint. Right. And when you compare the results of the census for a given country with the church membership records in that same country, mm -hmm. of course there's a huge drop-off mm -hmm. um, for Latter-day Saints. In other denominations there may be some, but not nearly mm -hmm. where it is for the Latter-day Saints. Um, yeah. There have been some, some work done, as you probably know, comparing, in this respect, comparing Mormons with Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm -hmm. And the retention rate for those two denominations much higher than it is for Mormons. If you measure <coughs> retention as a comparison between what people claim to be their religious connection yeah. and what the church records for that country claim. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think when you're asking about retention with national American data, it doesn't, you don't really get into this this question of the difference in the way you measure retention. Yes, that's right. So, that's right. Uh, it's actually pretty abysmal for <laughs> LDS Church Growth Blogspot guy because I wanted to talk to him about the recently released data from the Church at General Conference about how many people are on the rolls. Um, according to the church's own membership records, we've decreased to just under 1.5% annual growth rate, which you know is good compared to other denominations, but it's not where we used to be. And also, like you say, that really doesn't tell us who's there, who's actually coming to church or in any way retained, in any way active in the church. Well, growth rate is a little different question from retention. Yeah, it is. It is. But I found it really interesting. All right. We're almost done here. You guys have been really amazing. So I want to say that this is not just the context of what's going on with millennials within Mormonism, that uh, this is a generation that has the highest number of people who claim to be nuns, by which I don't mean habit, you know, wearing Roman Catholic women, but rather N-O-N-E-S, people who on a survey will say they have no religious preference. So even just in the last few years, you can see with millennials, 
it has gone up every time this question has been asked, and that's only since 2012. Um, among all Americans, as of 2016, we were looking at 26%, so one in four Americans saying they had no religious preference. My point in bringing this up is just to say that millennials are swimming in this soup. And when it becomes viable to leave a religion, and your peers are also doing the same thing, whatever their religion was, you have options in a way that you might not have had options two or three generations ago, or the cost would be higher in leaving a religion. So think about this wider context when we're thinking about um, leaving. And just briefly, are we at 9 o'clock? Oh, golly. Okay, so former Mormon's top five reasons for leaving. Don't really have time to go through each one individually. But like I said before, this idea of one particular doctrinal issue or historical issue being super important, that's not as important as the bigger picture. I could no longer reconcile my personal values and priorities with those of the church. I stopped believing there was one true church. This one is very consistent with um, PRRI's research into the nuns and what they say. Just simple loss of belief is the number one thing. Now that might include for Mormons things like Book of Mormon historicity playing its part or seer stones or whatever. But those things were also offered as specific options in our survey and those got very low engagement. Um, I felt judged or misunderstood for former Mormons is number four. And did on this? No, but we have broken it out by gender. And I'll get to that in just a minute. Um, I, I, you could see where I'm going with the judgment question. Let's look at millennials, though. For millennials, tied for number one, I felt judged or misunderstood. And then I did not trust the church leadership to tell the truth surrounding controversial or historical issues. So for baby boomers, um, the issue of judgment was in the top 10, but it was far lower. For millennials, this is tied for number one. And when I presented this in Colorado, and I particularly said judgment is, is also number one for all women as a whole, when you look at women uh, together. And that night after I had spoken, but before I left town, there was some dust up where someone from the, the local leadership sent out an email saying, I'm really worried about you know, young women wearing these skimpy clothes and tomorrow we're gonna crack down and we're gonna tell them what you know, about modesty. And then someone else who'd just been to my presentation said, do you know that the number one reason that women leave the church is that they felt judged or misunderstood? I'm like, really? And they decided to sort of back off. And I'm like, hey, okay, if nothing else, this research accomplished this one little thing in one stake in Colorado, um, so yay. Now number three is interesting here. For millennials, it's LGBT issues. And this was not in the top 10 for older people who had left the church. For Gen Xers, it was number six in their reasons. But this is very, very significant. Um, and then we saw these other reasons that were in the top five. Generally, I could no longer reconcile my personal values. And then simply, I drifted away from Mormonism. Where, Jana, where did your survey, I don't recall when the policy was announced. Where, where yeah. did your survey fit in connection with that? So our survey was in the fall of 2016, and the policy was in November of 2015, okay. so about 10 months later. Mm -hmm. And we did actually ask mm -hmm. two questions about the policy. One was about part one, do you believe, uh, do you strongly agree, somewhat agree, or 
strongly disagree, whatever, with uh, same people in a same-sex marriage being labeled as apostate and being subject to a disciplinary council. And then part B, how do you feel about children of same-sex marriage couples being prohibited from being baptized and blessed? And Mormons as a whole had support for this. So it had majority support, and that was also just barely true among millennials. But uh, they're not strongly supporting. <laughs> they're sort of saying somewhat supporting. They don't want to come out and say that they disagree with the prophet, especially after Russell M. Nelson, I think, kind of elevated this to the status of revelation in early 2016. Yeah. So um, the, po the policy issue is interesting. In interviews, it came up with some regularity of people who had either um, left the church, but more commonly had to find a way to negotiate it. One woman I talked to just stopped wearing her garments. She had just been to buy garments like the day before, and then the policy happened, and then the day after she went out and bought other underwear. <laughs> it was very decisive. There was a hand over here, I thought. Is there any curiosity amongst the brothers to your findings? Have you been invited in to, to meet with the... <laughs> no. Um, I am aware that someone handed a copy of the executive summary of this research to someone in the quorum. I haven't heard any follow-up on that. And, you know, frankly, it's wonderful if they would like to learn more about this, but they have their own researchers. I don't think that much of this is going to come as news to them honestly, maybe, maybe some of it. But uh, at the SSSR meeting last year, I did talk with a couple of the church's own sociologists. They can't tell me anything about their research, but they were able to tell me a little bit about methodology. You know, they are primarily interviewing people who are still in the church. And what's more, even people who are pretty darn committed in the church. Um, a lot of the, the intra church surveys, correct me if I'm wrong, but they, they tend to go to some of the more committed members of the church, which makes sense because other people might not be confidential about it or whatever, I don't know. He also said, one of them said that um, if they have uh, former Mormons, people who are on the rolls but no longer come to church, they don't really want to have that contact. They don't want to answer surveys and be, you know, be, be found, was what he said. Did you, uh, you, you know, that you, you heard about or maybe you've seen the data collected a few years back by uh, the uh, John Lynn and his friends? Mm -hmm. um, your data are much more representative, I think, uh, than theirs, but uh, some of these uh, top issues look mm -hmm. a lot like the same that were discovered in, uh, in that data set. Have you done a kind of check between the two to see how they yeah. reconcile on that particular issue? Well, a little bit. You know, one of the things about that survey, that's a snowball survey, as you know. It's not intended to be representative. And I think in the, in the opening part of where they're explaining the survey, and they cr criticize it themselves, which I appreciated, um, one of the things they say is that it is grossly over-representative over of people who are of a certain socioeconomic bracket and education level. Um, that, I think, contributes a lot to the fact that they found that historical and doctrinal issues were more significant than we did. So that is probably the biggest difference in the findings that we had, where something like social issues or just overarching loss of belief issues turned out to be more important than any one thing in particular. 
But if you're having a snowball survey where the people who take the survey are found because they're part of the Mormon Stories Facebook group or they are uh, you know, part of other affinity groups in social media of people who have left the church, have internet access, have time to sit around and talk about doctrinal issues, that's a pretty self-selecting experience. You know, let me say that this summer, um, I was sitting in gospel doctrine class and we came across that lesson about what happened in Kirtland. It's a lesson about apostasy. And that's how the discussion started. You know, people leave the church because they're lazy and they don't want to work hard. People leave the church because they get offended easily, etc. And just this list. And I raised my hand and said, do you know <laughs> that actually there are all these other reasons why people say that they leave the church? I feel that we have a responsibility to listen to what they say rather than assuming what, that we know why they left. And I also pointed out that's a narrative that we love. People who are still in the church, we love that narrative, that it's all their fault because it doesn't require any change on our part. We don't have to do anything. That was their choice. They got offended and they left. And you know, thinking about it as a narrative, I think is important in, in helping people see. And I tried to be gentle. Sometimes I actually succeed. I don't know if I succeeded on that day. But I also said, like in the write-in comments of our survey, for we gave people an opportunity to talk in, in more depth about why they left. Some of those were very illuminating, like a woman who, um, whose husband had been abusive, the church sided with the abuser. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. that's not a case of being offended. You know, right. that's a case of, of kind of systemic injustice that we have to be a little more courageous about facing. We only have a, a, you know, a minute or so left, more. Well, I also think that kinds of surveys the church produces tend to be too bland to be of a lot of use, and probably because it has to be run through a committee of seven people, including two apostles. <laughs> and I, I just know I was on the list for a while, and I, I got a couple of these surveys. Yeah. And I remember one, it was after Prop 8, mm. a couple of years, and a question on there was, how important is the church's position on homosexuality to you? Mm. Well, how do you answer that? What do they expect to get out of that? Because people who are very homophobic mm. would say, it's very important to me that they, the church mm. says that gay people should not be involved in the church. Or people that are very welcoming of people, of gay people, might say, that's very important to me as well. Mm -hmm. But they never asked whether you were for it or against it. It's almost like they were afraid they were to the answer to that question. That's fascinating, yeah. Let's take a couple more comments and then we really do need to close because I'm sure some people want to go home. I think in all fairness here, I mean, I think we, we have a long way to go on many of these cultural issues, but uh, with respect to LGBT issues, um, the church is making movement, they're shifting. And the fact that we even have a gay and Mormon website mm -hmm. right now, and the fact that on the ministering uh, you know, website to bishops and religious mm -hmm. side they are making it very well known that it's not a choice. This is huge. Crazy. This is a huge thing that the church has moved on. And um, so can we make for the try there? Yeah, but the church is, uh, let's be fair here. You know, mm -hmm. the church is making a shifting in this. And they're doing it in a very positive way. We have a long ways to go to be more inclusive and to throw our doors open to more to the LGBT community mm -hmm. in many ways. But they are trying to, there's more movement definitely. Area. Good point. Um, you I just was curious uh, about Morris's 
receiving a survey. I've also received several surveys. I don't know how many people in here that over the older generation received surveys. The last one I had was on the gospel essays. Oh. I thought about them. And I'm wondering, does that drive policy, these, these surveys that the church I hope so. And I've been you? Over the years, I've had three or four times when they sent me just, I, I just get an email. At the time that you have received those surveys, and you as well, uh, Maury, were you in a state calling? Absolutely nothing. Not I am for so you. low profile. I'm, okay. surprised. <laughs> I'm surprised anybody in the church would have picked me up. Okay. Uh, Not in a state calling. Okay. Good. Yeah. That's helpful information. Um, last comment. Uh, last question. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, many of us are parents probably of these kids that are mm -hmm. in these groups. Uh, I certainly certainly are. And I'm sitting here listening to you, and I'm absolutely persuaded that there are some differences in that are that go beyond generational differences, just mm -hmm. age. I'm really persuaded of that. And the, and I, you showed us all sorts of behaviors, and the trend lines were absolutely consistent. Mm -hmm. My question is: Is it possible that we have a crisis of faith going on? Mm -hmm. Does anything in your research need you to believe that? We have a crisis of faith with these Gen X's and millennials. You know, that's the language that is being used, the, the faith crisis, the faith transition. I would challenge the language a bit and say we have an epistemological <clears throat> crisis. We have a knowledge crisis, okay? But faith is not the issue, really. Belief is still very high, even among former Mormons, okay? Mm -hmm. Among former Mormons of, of younger persuasions, Many of them still have core testimony uh, of some of the foundational beliefs in the church, mostly traditional Christian beliefs and not as much with specific Mormon beliefs like Joseph Smith being a prophet. But still, belief is not the issue. Uh, the issue is more related to knowledge, to authority, to society, to politics. It's not just a faith crisis. Does that make sense? All right, thank you all so much. for listening to the Dialogue podcasts in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.